I'm Matthew McCleary. And I'm Mitchell McCleary. And this is the Movies While They Sleep. A podcast where two brothers watch movies and talk about them after their families have gone to bed. Welcome to today's episode where we celebrated the 10th anniversary of Bennett Miller's Moneyball. We're celebrating on time, releasing a little late. <laughs> Moneyball, starring Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill, uh, is absolutely an awesome movie. Any excuse for us to uh, watch this one again? And we have a special guest on today's podcast, a friend of mine, uh, aspiring screenwriter, guy who played baseball. You're going to hear all about him. Brendan Galbraith is joining us for this conversation about one of his favorite movies. And Moneyball is streaming right now on Tubi. Tubi. Or not Tubi. That is the question. <laughs> okay. Anyways, let's cut to our conversation about Moneyball already in progress. Play ball. Well, let's just kind of get started. We've got our guest here today, Brendan Galbraith. Brendan, uh, we just want to give you, first of all, thank you for being here. Thank you for making time for to do the pod. Uh, go ahead and I, just... I know, it was such a chore for us to all rewatch this movie. <laughs> so, appreciate uh, it. Yeah. Go ahead and introduce yourself, uh, kind of what you do, your background, and especially kind of that stuff that is related, I guess, to what we're doing here with, with Movies and Moneyball. Yeah, so uh, I'm Brendan. Um, I, don't know, I don't know. First and foremost, I guess I would say I uh, right now work at a podcast production studio, um, Paradiso. It's a global podcast production studio. And so I'm having a lot of fun there. I've been there about a year and a half now. And so I've been working in podcasting for that long. Um, along with that, I'm a, trying to be a, a screenwriter. I'm an aspiring screenwriter, just uh was uh, notified that I was a quarterfinalist at the Austin Film Festival screenplay competition in the drama category, right which is really cool. Um, Congrats. That script, thank you. Yeah, that script, Bash, uh, follows Steve Wilstein, who's this reporter during the 1998 home run race between uh, Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa. Uh, so a baseball screenplay, you say? It's a baseball <laughs> based on a true story drama. So, like, I think, you know, it is very related to what we're going to be talking about. And so um, we can get into that more. Uh, later and then uh, I guess what's also uh, important to note is aside from being a humongous baseball fan um, I'm, form I'm a former baseball player myself um, played in played through high school played into college I was at a division division three school here in Los Angeles um, and yeah like I said I'm a, I'm a humongous baseball fan and so like my interests in this movie very I mean, much I mean, the Venn diagram is just I love yeah. seeing yeah why I love revisiting it and I was Totally game to come talk about it with you guys. So you knew what they were talking about on the first watch. <laughs> yeah, to, to some extent, probably. Nice. nice. <laughs> Which, yeah, I'd love to hear. I mean, it's like, it's a bit of an unfair watch for me because they're throwing out all these terms and this whole, like, language. And, you know, I think I have some idea of how much a sports fan you guys are, but I'd love to hear more from your perspective what kind of maybe goes over your head and what doesn't. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't mean to sound... Uh, like I'm an expert or anything by that. I by no means am not a sabermetrist, sabermetrician myself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm excited to get into that. And you know, if I ever, if I'm turning this movie podcast into a baseball podcast, <laughs> just pull the reins back on me. I can really get we, lost. We in could the use it yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Reaching another demographic. Uh, so Moneyball is based on this book 
uh, of the same name. Had you read right. uh, the the book about that A season? Yeah, at some point, um, I think it was in high school. I, I picked it up and started reading it. Um, but in high school, I just wasn't the reader sure. that I am now. Like I wish I was, um, but I've since returned to reading and in, enjoying it. And so it's on my list because I didn't finish it. Is I guess the short answer. Um, but I, I was getting into it, and yeah, I would love to. Okay, I'm just point. curious too because uh, I imagine being able to just work through that Michael Lewis book gives so much even more context for what's happening in the movie, and 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 for the you know Aaron Sorkin and Bennett Miller who directed like to create this thing that is not confusing, <laughs> uh, that is about like the most complicated way uh, I think you could say of like understanding and looking at baseball. Right. Yeah. For as confusing as it could have been. Yes. It probably, it wasn't because this movie is so watchable. It is. Yes. I was looking at like letterbox reviews of it yesterday and so many people were saying it's like a cable classic. Like it's something that's just always on TV and you could turn it on at any point almost and enjoy certain sections or just take it from wherever you started off and you'd have a good time, I'm sure. Um, So, uh, Brendan, before we get too much into Moneyball and kind of the topic at hand, why don't you give us... So, you, what was your degree in specifically? Yeah, um, so I graduated from Occidental College with a degree uh, in Media Arts and Culture with an emphasis in production, um, which is kind of a fancy way of saying film production degree. Um, and then I also had an interdisciplinary writing minor. Cool. So, so do you have this? I mean, you you pursued filmmaking as you know in college. You have this love for movies. Um, we always ask our guests this. We've shared this on the pod. What is your kind of like early movie memories origin story with the amazing art that is cinema? Yeah, that's like I don't know when you. Um, I had heard you guys ask guests these questions in the past, and I had asked myself at the time, like, what would I answer that question? And then you asked me to come on, and then I got really nervous because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to say about that question. It better live up. Um, I mean, thinking about, like, some of the early movies that have stuck with me from, quote-unquote, childhood, um, like some movies that I would always put on if I was, like, homesick uh, mm. or something that I would just always revisit. And, again, like, I would, if I'm up at night and I'm scrolling through, like, the movie channels, if something is on, like, what would yeah. I be putting on? The two that crop up to my mind each time for some reason is National Treasure and Back to the Future <laughs> franchises. Yes. Which are both good. They're They're both really, like, comfort food for me. And you could argue, especially probably Back to the Future more than National Treasure, they're solid films and... Yeah. Um, are like aside from just being good popcorn movies, I think they are uh, they stand you know the test of a critical eye. So yeah. I'm uh, you know it's not like I'm ashamed of them, but I just think like I heard some of your other guests talk about these like really formative experiences they had, and <laughs> yeah, and then like later in life, I had thought about it too. Like later in high school, when I started looking at film as a possible career aspiration for myself, um. I remember La La Land stuck out to me. Yeah. I think that kind of hit me right at the right time. I had just started my first semester in Los Angeles. And then this like movie about the magic mm. of Los Angeles and you, following your dreams comes out. And yeah. I also went in the movie, that movie completely blind. Um, I 
knew it was like a musical and that's like it. And then my mom actually was the one who was like, oh, we should go see that for our Christmas movie. And I went and saw mm. it with my parents and I kind of begrudgingly saw it. But then that opening number started and it just like knocked me off my feet. And then I yeah. was in it um, the rest of the way. And then I actually ended up seeing it again in theaters like the next day or two days later mm. with my now wife, um, Sarah, who, yeah. you know, Mitchell, that's something I think we can bond over being married to Sarah's. <laughs> Sarah's are the best. <laughs> um, but I, I, when she and I saw it, I was like, oh, yeah, I'm really excited to go see this because I had such a great time. Yeah. Um, so that one and then the other movie that I saw twice in theaters, which I guess is a good mark of what, you know, really impressed you, funny enough, was um, is um, Deadpool. Uh, oh, yeah. Another movie that really, like, surprised me um, just in many of the different clever ways it treated a superhero movie, I think. Yeah. And it was just something that was completely different and had fun with a new style of doing that genre. So I know that was like, I don't know, four movies I just listed no, that's off great. and yeah, different yeah, yeah. like degrees of childhood and different impacts. But you know, I think that that gives a, a good sense. Yeah, and then I, I'd say Moneyball is in that list. Moneyball is right up there. So again, happy to yeah, Mo- and Moneyball is uh, celebrating its 10th anniversary this week. Which is crazy uh, to me. Which I did is not crazy. realize it's that old. And and my cool, we get to maybe origin stories with Moneyball. Um, well, I, I was just going to say, I, I was laughing about movies that you see multiple times in theaters because the movie I've seen the most in a theater is probably Avatar. And yeah. I have no concept of anything that happened in that movie. Like, it did not stick with me in any meaningful way. This is James but, Cameron Avatar, yes, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not uh, The Last Airbender. No, no. <laughs> maybe even more shameful. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I was thinking about Moneyball and the 10th anniversary. So Moneyball came out in September of 2011. And this was one of mine and my now wife's first like date movies that we ever did oh, together. Wow. That's crazy. Uh, Megan and I, like we we were, I mean this was this would have been like the week or so that we started dating. We started dating at the end of September 2011, and we went and saw Moneyball together. Uh, so that's my like nice warm memory of this movie. And was it, it was your idea to go see it? You were yes. Like yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but she was Probably game and she thinking. still talks about it like, oh, that was a good movie. Has she revisited it all? Or uh, I, I don't think oh, Megan's on. revisited Moneyball. Megan doesn't rewatch a lot of movies. That's uh, funny. That's, that's all Sarah does. <laughs> rewatching <laughs> Hamilton on Disney Plus. Rewatching <laughs> Hamilton, rewatching Gilmore Girls. I mean, mail. yeah, she. You've got mail. She's an expert. <laughs> I think I'm on the fourth viewing. No, no, weeks. really? Wow. <laughs> Something's in the air for you've got mail. In this house. Uh, it's you know, you got mail is such a a great movie for the times because it's about the like our slow descent into capitalism and a changing a permanent Right. Uh, they need a sequel world. where it's a Bezos figure <laughs> shutting down Fox books. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The sequel is the big chain gets shut down by the evil corporate, like, global conglomerate. Right. And then another 10 years, there's just no culture. No or books. People. No, there's just no people. <laughs> no people. <laughs> Everything's gone. Mitchell, what's your origin story for Moneyball? it's crazy i put it on like last year for the first time and i I just watched it (laughs) because okay i was on yeah i i remember seeing the movie posters for 
Moneyball back in the day, and I was like, Brad Pitt next to a lawn. I didn't even register that it was a baseball movie. <laughs> Just next to uh, some grass. That's funny. Yeah, that, that was the only context I had. I didn't see a trailer or hear anything about it. I was just like, you know, maybe he's at a kid's soccer game or something, much like you were earlier this afternoon. So uh, I, I heard it was great. I just, nothing struck me about what that experience would be like to see that movie. So I didn't. Um, but then I was on a Sorkin kick, I think, mm. during uh, quarantine this year. And inevitably, Moneyball is at the top of that list. And it was on Netflix. And it was the premise of this pod where family had gone to bed. It was like, you know, 10 at night. And I'm like, this is the type of movie I feel like I could finish, when, even though it's I'm going to be up late. You know, it's not a criterion, like, oh, God, like, I got to pretend like I'm into this <laughs> sort of movie. <laughs> um, so I, I thought I would just start it and finish it the next day. And I was like, whoa, I'm on for a ride here. So very pleasantly sur- surprised. And I don't like to watch rewatch movies too quickly after I've seen. Like, I'm not, I'm not a big rewatcher. At least most of the time. I used to be. Not so much anymore. But that one I was very happy to revisit last night. And it was the same. I was like this. Oh, yes. This is from the jump. Yeah, it's funny because I rewatched this for the first time a couple years ago. Megan was in Africa. It was like it was like it it was a movie that I picked up digitally as like, oh, I'm going to go fly to Ghana and visit her. So I would like load some movies on my computer and Moneyball was on sale, and I'm like, I haven't seen this since it came out. Cool. But my memory of it was, I think this is good, but the baseball is kind of confusing, and they don't really do a lot in this movie. I love that. You know, That's... the baseball and all that. <laughs> <laughs> but but my, my strongest memory is they don't really do a lot. It's a lot yeah. of them sitting around. In dark rooms. Talking about players, which is the movie <laughs> except when i rewatched it I, you know a year or two ago and then i rewatched it this week i'm like i don't need anything else it's so good yeah that is something that stuck out to me last night when we were watching was i was like yeah this is a pretty inactive like movie yeah. like there's not there's definitely not a ton of action um and uh, again to return to like what i don't know what sorkin is most known for <laughs> is having people talk in a room and having it work. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, you're, I would just say you're absolutely right that it's, I could see how that would stick out for you. It's like, yes, that, that happened, kind of but memory. so much happened. Yeah. And, and I guess what has struck me in, in revisiting Moneyball is how good it is because it's not, I, at least I don't think, I think it's a well loved and well regarded movie, but I don't think of it as something that people talk about like, man, when Moneyball came out, that was it for, you know, like the social network had a huge, and that was the year before another Aaron Sorkin written movie, David Fincher, the Sorkin network, or this, the Sorkin network, the social network hits and like people recognize this as an incredible work. And I think, again, Moneyball well regarded, but it's, you know, maybe a tier or two down, but I watched this movie and I'm like, no, this is, this is what every movie should be. Every movie should be this watchable, this uh, smooth. That's the word that 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 comes to mind so often uh, on rewatch is just how smooth this this movie is going down. Like yeah, it goes down nice and easy. Oh yeah. man, that's the best part about about it. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up Social Network though, because even before getting into the movie, I had been thinking about it, and I was like, 
social network and Moneyball are very related um, in more ways than just Aaron Sorkin being involved. Um, and I don't know. I, I mean, if we're fully into just dissecting the movie, I guess yeah. I can present this theory now. Um, I think Social Network, like you said, is a very was a very splashy movie when it came mm-hmm. out and was expected to be this, you know, important movie. Uh, that spoke to the times we were in and maybe the future. But I guess one of the biggest accomplishments of Social Network was its ability to predict the future. And, Mm. you know, even more than we realized at the time, it spoke on these, like, big themes of how much social media is going to have an influence on our daily life, how we function and socialize. Yeah. Um, And so, like, that is one of the reasons why Social Network has, like, stood the test of time in its and last. grown in, and grown in cultural in its, reputation yes, yes absolutely i think moneyball has done the exact same thing for baseball mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. when it came out in 2011 um baseball is going through this change in which you know we, we were trying to when i say we i mean i guess i mean the baseball community not that i was making decisions at the time but uh baseball was adopting saber metrics and the things that are mm discussed in Moneyball um, to an extent, but now that we are 10 years removed from that, uh, the pendulum has swung so far in that direction mm-hmm. that like wow, numbers and uh, just all sorts of statistical analyses rule the game. And in many ways, people think it is, it is looked upon too much as like mm. the ruling uh, way you the evaluate prevailing, players. Yes. Yeah, wow. Like there are... Um, Many players I've heard that say like they disregard a number of these stats. They're 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 just like, what does that even mean? And they don't really like think of it as important as some saber sabermetricians. Again, I might be messing up that word, but all that to say is, I think that that's one of the reasons why I would appreciate Moneyball even more now is because mm. it has done that same exact thing where um, it has pre- it almost predicted the future basically yeah. and has shown how much the themes of this movie actually will have an impact and have had an impact in, yeah. in the time since its release. So I think, I just think that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, how, how connected those two movies are. Yeah. Which you would and, not expect to be. And they're both, uh, Aaron Sorkin adapted screenplays based on basically nonfiction books. And, uh, it, it, I mean, it makes sense that they were going to make a movie about the Oakland A's, you know, that, that 2002 season, but, the, you know the social network like uh, who was going to make that that book into a movie you know I, the story's there and there's a huge cultural impact but uh sorkin is the guy to pull it off i think we we talk about um sorkin adapting this material yeah it's i i did read something apparently that he made it a point when he agreed to come on and rewrite the script that he wanted steven zalian to keep credit as a co-writer on the script mm. because he thought Stephen had already made a really solid draft and mm. written something that was already very good and that he didn't change too much of it. So I think that's of note um, yeah. that, you know, Sorkin didn't <laughs> that, adapt it from scratch and, and was coming in and helping something that was already created. Especially for the guy who has writing credits on like 80% of the episodes of The West Wing for the time that he was there and like the story, the stories from that writer's room were like 
a lot of those writers did a lot of work and then didn't get a story by credit or a, or a screenwriting credit because uh, because it it didn't matter until it passed through Sorkin's desk. It wasn't what it, it wasn't the quality. It wasn't the thing that they were going to shoot. So it, if somebody somebody could get it eighty percent of the way there, but that Sorkin touch was so important, uh, which is I I find really interesting. Because this, to me, of all the Sorkin scripts that I've seen, uh, is maybe the least Sorkin-y. Um, yeah, I would it, totally agree. And, I was and so as many monologues. Yeah, but I, but I think that's a great point you bring up, Brendan, of uh, you can see the work of someone else in this. Right, yeah, they don't, all, all the characters don't sound the same, which yeah. is, you know, one of the criticisms of, of Sorkin. Uh, they don't have that quippy. I mean, they are quippy, but it is. It does feel different than something like The West Wing or even Social Network, um, where it's not this ultra fast paced dialogue in the same way. Because I think some of the best scenes of the movie are those trade the trade deadline phone calls where Billy's going back and forth um, with Peter, and he's going back and forth with other GMs. But it does feel different than the yeah. usual Sorkin treatment. Yeah. So shout out to Steven's Alien. Yeah. Um, no, I, I, it's so interesting to me because um, because yeah, it feels very different and and it feels off. It feels in a real way like a differently paced uh, kind of screenplay, um, where a word that I use uh, that I would use a lot to describe Sorkin's writing uh, is very. Pr- propulsive mm-hmm. um the social network's a really propulsive movie that that from the jump you are just moving forward barreling through this thing that's how episodes and scenes individual scenes of like the west wing uh really feel and this movie uh uh really takes a much more measured approach and and i imagine a lot of that is credit to steve zalian and probably to bennett miller uh the director and and i i love sorkin work directed by other people yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> totally uh, because i just i think he he aaron sorkin thinks a lot of himself and we need other people to be around uh, <laughs> yeah and it just seems like i don't know um he doesn't have he doesn't have that aaron sorkin touch as a director it seems um what's the name of the movie um molly's game was a yeah. movie that i think I was set up to love. I really, really want to. I know champion that movie. Adrian Elba's in it. Yeah, and Jessica Chastain. It's you know, it's poker. It's it's uh, the mob. It's we're in courtrooms. I mean, it's got all the ingredients. It's, it's celebrities. Like. Yeah, yeah, it's Hollywood. I mean, it's got everything that you need. And I, I, I remember writing what I thought was a clever letterboxed review of that movie once when I watched it on a plane. Was like. They're because all clever, Sorkin, Brendan. Because, thank you. Because Sorkin loves using baseball analogies because he obviously is a baseball fan to some extent. Um, I was like, I want this to be a home run and it's just like a double down the line. It's like mm. solid. It's good. And yeah, it is a positive experience. But I feel like in the hands of another director, to your point, it can do so much more. Like if you handed that off yeah. to, you know, I don't know who to name off. Uh, if you hand it off to uh, David, David Fincher or Soderbergh. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I oh, think that yeah. is awesome. And, um, you know, not that I'm running the podcast here, but that does remind me. Did you guys hear who was supposed to originally direct Moneyball? No. It was, our, it was our guy, Steven Soderbergh. Oh. Was supposed, he was pitching this around originally. 
Now I want to know: um, Do you think that would have been a better movie? I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm not a. I'm not a, a Soderbergh stan, like my brother here. I, I, even if it was a great whatever, I like what I have. Yeah, in Moneyball. I, I, I do think... not touch Moneyball. Soderbergh, get out of here. <laughs> Moneyball, especially after this rewatch, joins the very short list of movies for me that I would say perfect movie. Wow. Uh, I just. Same. I just love it. And and one of the big questions I want to bring to this conversation today is why? Because I can't even tell you. Like, I really don't know what it is. Yeah. I think what you really want to say is, then what the f*** are we talking about, man? <laughs> you guys taking, talking the same body nonsense like we're selling jeans. Looking for Fabio. <laughs> Who's Fabio? He's a shortstop. He's from Seattle. <laughs> this movie too many times um yeah it's the pit of it all for me oh the brad pitt performance is i watching i I was just like why is he not in more movies i know i know you know i mean is he what's the latest he's been in can anyone like lately once upon a time in hollywood right once upon a time in hollywood i'm like pitt you have a gift please he just got to that point in his career where he was gonna do the stuff that he like the projects that he likes and wants to do now this is an insane year that because you know we we like the oscars on the pod this year is like one of the worst okay do you remember what the big winner was this year um i don't green book adjacent probably (laughs) okay the the big winner of this year's oscar oscars was the silent film the artist oh god wow uh jean appropriate because no one has watched that movie since that oscars nobody has watched this or had a conversation nobody watched that even during that oscars uh they're like it's black and white and, and silent I'm sure it's great. Jean Desjardins wins Best Actor from the Artist, beating Brad Pitt. Cool. Um, the the director of the Artist wins, beating. Um, now, Moneyball is not uh, nominated for Best Director, but Tree of Life, um, oh, wow. which is a, a podcast fave over here. Big Brad um, Pitt here. Uh, yeah, yeah, and a big Brad. Oh my! God. See, Brad Pitt could have been nominated for he, both of these. He movies. was like, after this, you know, I, I. I'm not giving you my gift anymore. <laughs> it's too much. It's, it's going to be too much for yeah. you all. Yeah, you're not Ungrateful. I love that Brad Pitt wins that supporting actor Oscar for uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. But this is the movie. This And he deserved that one. That performance is stellar. But this is the year he should have won his Best Actor trophy. This is this His performance in this movie is so face. good. It, it's, this, it's like this constant... It's. I mean, it's everything about the the performance. It's his presence, his posture, the face, the the constant. The, the one of my favorite. I mean, we love Brad Pitt eating, right? Yes. It's oh. the scoop of popcorn in the mouth. Yes. I, he doesn't get it down in time. <laughs> he spits he just it out. Spits spits it out. so violently. That's my unsung hero, actually, for the, the movie. It's, it's the popcorn. popcorn and peanuts. And peanuts. Yes. Uh, the, the, the peanuts in, in the GM's office. Right, for yeah, Cleveland. for all the guys oh, yeah. who are oh, trying yeah. to yeah. stay off um, their chewing tobacco addiction. And so they yeah. have some oral fixation, you know, and they got to oh, feed it somehow. You know how people like in movies or TV shows have their, their way of holding a cigarette or cigar, like especially Mad Men. It's like yeah. Don's got his very, Roger's got his, but Brad Pitt's way he scoops, you know, 
finger snacks. Yes. That's that's a definitive trait, and I need to study it. In anticipation of this, <laughs> I well, one, uh, I look. I tried looking up how many takes did Brad Pitt have to shove that twi- Twinkie into his mouth because I was just <laughs> curious. The Twinkie. <laughs> the Twinkie is it's burned into my memory. Um, I couldn't find a definitive answer, unfortunately, as to how many times he had to do that. But I found this article theorizing as to why Brad Pitt eats in so many of his movies. And, you know, the TLDR on it basically was like, A, they're trying to have us relate to Brad Pitt more because if Brad Pitt is just doing stuff on screen, we're not going to be able <laughs> to Brad, relate to him. If, if Brad Pitt could look like that and eat Twinkies. <laughs> I mean, that is not relatable. But I guess what they're trying to do is like, if Brad Pitt is being a cool spy or, yes. you know, robbing casinos, we don't relate we're to like, him. Screw this But if guy, he's doing it while it. eating a hamburger, then we relate yeah. to him a bit more. E- eating and then, that disgusting plate of nachos from Ocean's Eleven, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And then licking his fingers. Yes. Getting out licking of his, like, his white fingers. suit afterwards or whatever. <sighs> what a choice. Um, and then apparently he's like a notorious grazer as well. Like he doesn't eat meals or something or oh. like sit down for actual meals three times a day. And so I guess he just tries and works those into his character on set and gets away with eating occasionally. <laughs> I don't know. It's it was it, it wasn't a particularly um, you know revelatory article, but I just I, had I, to try and find some answers because it is such a phenomenon. It it is. I mean, it's so consistent across these movies too. It, it, it's 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 a Brad Pitt thing. It's not a this character or this movie or whatever. No. But he. I mean, what's interesting about it because he's such a good actor, he is making choices for like it's it's not the same thing movie to movie Mm. uh one of the one of my standout scenes for me in this movie is where he sits down in um uh the philip seymour hoffman character art howe's office um and and it's the line of great talk every time every time we talk i feel invigorated by their game of baseball and then he like you know walks out like a boy scout yeah yes uh and, and just his ability to to take on that for for just a moment and it's so believable and it's I, I there's not anger there right like a different actor plays that differently well, uh, I mean there is but but it's so uh, it's 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 such a subtle choice yeah right. and it, and it, it, it's I'm gonna keep I'm gonna keep all the emotion at arm's length and I'm gonna do this and this is a condescending put down but a different actor like you're going to see the anger flash across their face or like, and just it's enter into it. Yeah. He's yeah. Oh, he is. I know. He's so great. Although he was giving me some Daniel Plainview vibes in this movie a couple of times, actually. Why is that? When was that? When uh, he's the first time he's walking through the team's room and a guy comes up, he's like, Hey, just thanks for this opportunity. No one's out. He's like, all right, <laughs> away from me. Friend for you and your family. I, 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 I have no, no problem. problem. No, no problem. problem. The most no, single minded, the most single-tracked mind here. Yeah. <laughs> Away. <laughs> yeah. It's like he does play. It's like because that's like what a GM, I think, has to be is like, uh, first and foremost, probably some sort of a nerd. You know, you have to be very much in the numbers yeah. and into the data. And but he is a different GM, as he says. He's the first play, former player GM. So he's that, got this different. So he is that, is that true? That's he was I'm the first former almost 100 percent sure that is okay. true. Um, I didn't I didn't realize that was so uncommon. Yeah, oddly enough, it is, isn't it? Wow. You know, that's weird. Um, I think Brad Pitt does play toe that line really nicely, where he does have this very like focused, directional mind, like like you would see 
in the portrayal of a quote unquote yeah. nerd where it's like, no, I'm focusing on this thing right now. I'm not going to talk to you. And even when, especially when you're not saying things to me in a locker room. Right. But then he does have this aura about him that a former professional athlete would have. And that comes in in different scenes, like especially when he's confronting David Justice. I think he's got that confidence yeah. to stand up to a multi-million dollar athlete that yeah. your usual GM probably wouldn't. Um, so, to yeah, to both of your points, I think Brad Pitt does a great job of portraying this this complexity that Billy Bean yeah. uniquely and has. holding holding a lot of uh, traits and attributes intention in this character. This, there's, there is a complexity to this character uh, because of the nature of his role in the organization and his background and, um, and, and Pitt plays everything so pitch perfectly. I, I like to the point where like more scenes with the daughter would have been great. And that's the stuff I normally be like, get this out of the movie. I don't need another reason to relate to him, but yeah, it's it, funny. She looked like she was 30. <laughs> What? <laughs> yes, watching it. Oh it's God. like it's funny because she's twelve, but she she literally looks like just like someone did some composite work for a thirty year old woman and like tried to guess what she would be as a twelve year old. Oh my God! <laughs> These are the hot takes that you get on movies while they sleep. And now I'm I'm trying to find the cast. I'm trying to find the cast and find her actual age just to like. The clothes she was wearing and her haircut, like it just like that's a thirty year old, you know. Or it's a twelve year old like, from two thousand two, right? Who, who, yeah. Who's like an account? An accountant, oh, yeah, that's a good point, you know, Brendan. Somewhere. It took, takes place in two thousand two. Right. Sarah had commented on Jonah Hill's suit early on in the movie, oh, how yeah. it was like very ill fitting. I'm like, well, this yeah. is a different fashion time. <clears throat> um, and and yeah, that character. Yeah, that character too. Be the I most mean, savvy. He's not. Yeah, dresser. he doesn't seem. Yeah, like someone who would care about that as much. Um, yes, she's only twenty three. Okay, so she, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm really I'm talking about literal up. ages here. <laughs> saying it's like oh the, oh there there's you know there's kids in high school where it's like yeah you're already thirty look at you like like in a kind of dorky way. Although you know a twelve year old from. 2002 is you know 30 years old today much 30 yeah so there you go they're they're, they're just so right on with the production i'm just playing the literal numbers here (laughs) (laughs) okay uh so yeah the brad pitt stuff he who um yeah well go ahead if you're wrapping up the brad pitt section we were talking about acting and all the other oscar nominations and be remiss to talk about jonah hill and i was curious who who did jonah hill lose to because he was nominated for this role as well yeah, he, he loses to Christopher Plummer, the late, great Christopher Plummer, um, for a movie called Beginners, which certainly has had very little uh, cultural reputation over the years. I'm sure it's great or whatever. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, but... like, I like Christopher Plummer, but... <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> Does Jonah Hill have an Oscar? I can't remember. No, I don't think so. He's He's been nominated... Uh, for this and did he also get nominated for Wolf nominated of Wall Street? for two Oscars, I would imagine. I was was... Say Quentin <clears throat> needs to bring the trio together. Yes. Somehow. Yeah, yeah, Wolf so, of Wall Street. Yeah, he's nominated he's been nominated for these two, Moneyball and Wolf of Wall Street. Because he's uh, amazing in this. That was something yeah, he is. Sarah pointed out to me early when we were watching this, how and I, I guess I should say, uh, my wife Sarah comes from a an acting background having Oh yeah done theater in college and and studied it as well um uh and she was just noticing all these tiny little 
um, acting choices he was making and all these little facial expressions he was making early on in like that first scene where he and Brad Pitt are together after Brad Pitt's horrible ambush meeting in Cleveland. Yeah. He comes out and confronts Peter and he's like, who are you, right? And we were both watching that and she's like, like look at his face. You like totally believe he is genuinely scared of yeah. of Billy right now. And it's absolutely true. And then I was watching that throughout the rest of the the viewing. He does those choices every single time. Again, like a scene sticks out where he's talking to David Justice on the plane, trying to talk his way through as to why Billy doesn't travel with the team and where the soda money mm. is, right? And it's like all these little tiny like pauses and stutters and um you know, avoiding eye contact. I mean, yeah, these seem simple, but they all combine to create an amazing performance. I thought, where I was believing him every step of the way, yeah. And I thought it was cool because this is, I think, Jonah Hill's one of this is one of his first quote unquote dramatic roles, right? Where he's not yeah. playing pure comedy, even if he is. A lot of the comedic relief of this movie, he he does a great job of, I think, stepping into a very believable performance as well as bringing some levity to the whole situation. Uh, love the Jonah Hill performance I I love the performances pretty much uniformly Uh, every time I watch this movie I forget that Chris Pratt is in it and then he shows up right oh my god my first time I was like it's true he does look like a baseball player totally what were you going to say Brendan about him having a journey yeah apparently the whole casting process um, for him he was auditioning he auditioned for it and they said he wasn't in shape enough to be believed as a baseball player and so then he started working out and he would check in on this role, presumably with his agents, like every week. He's like, yeah. did they cast it yet? Did they cast it yet? And they hadn't. And then eventually he got his body into a decent enough place. He took a picture of himself and like sent it off to the casting director or to the director and said, what do you think now, basically? And <laughs> and then I guess it worked and he got the role. And we were all, uh, I'm sure we're all thankful for it because he's, he's also great. Yeah. Years later, he sends a picture of his Guardians of the Galaxy body. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> like, oh, really? <laughs> that maybe. Yeah, it's too much. Yeah, I don't believe that as a journeyman catcher. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I I always forget that he's in this. Then he shows up and he's just great in it. Um, but it's also the it's the all the performances down that scene that you guys were quoting earlier of all the scouts at the beginning of the off season. Mm-hmm. It feels to me like half those guys are not even real actors. Okay, so yes. Uh, Again, part of my research and preparing for this episode was uh, like half of the scouts, if not more, were actual baseball scouts. Like I think (sighs) four of the scout roles were actors and those are probably the most speaking roles. But it's like, but you're totally right. That's why they felt that way, I'm sure. (laughs) And it's great because there's such a... You can't get that look that they have from actors. Yes. It's like Nomadland. It's like, yeah, yeah these are people. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> these, these are these are normies. These uh, are people, for sure. But but what's so like interesting about it is I feel the naturalism as I'm watching it, but it's not distracting in the way that other times where you see movies and there's a big story of that you know oh we got just normal people to come in and and it's like yeah but the, and they weren't very good. Uh, yeah, it stuck uh, out for the wrong reasons. For, for the wrong reasons. This stuck out because it just feels like I'm in a scouting room and this is like these guys have been doing this forever. Yeah. I want to know if that guy who has a hearing aid 
and it's tells God, everyone oh, he's he's a scout. It tells he's everyone this man answers we to ownership know. and God. I want to know if he's an actor or not because no one gets that haircut <laughs> and that hearing aid without being a scout. With that jacket, that swishy yes. jacket. Yes, I mean if that's an actor, then that's yeah a great job, I guess. Probably from makeup and and wardrobe, but props it's to like that Jared scout. Widow. Props to that scout because that was a, a great you know performance in that mini monologue or whatever you want to call it. It was amazing. Which reminds me, Brendan, I'm curious. So you asked earlier about our sports backgrounds, um, and I, I'm a huge basketball fan. Like, I played basketball and watch it regularly. I mean, I mean Matthew, we're, we grew up Kings fans, and I'm still a Kings fan, and Matthew is too. Uh, I don't know. It, yeah, it's, it's rough out there. But uh, So that's the only thing that I'm, like, heavily invested in Sacramento Kings, by the way, best Instagram in the league. Yes, and, no, good and TikTok Twitter. as well. Yeah, oh, their social yeah, media oh. team is killing it. Yeah, fully. It's the, real the only team thing that they can succeed in right now. So, uh, but man, 2002, interesting year for teams to have get, gotten robbed of their due results. But anyway, um, it's, this is as a major basketball fan, I still don't understand this part of the game, which you know includes, which is also part of Moneyball, which is the idea of like these big market and small market teams and like even even with the nba that like the salary cap thing and i was wondering if you could explain that more of like how teams get money where's the cap how how does how do the markets influence i mean i it's obvious that you know the la lakers have more viewership and more people going to the game but it like i guess i'm thinking about um salary caps and like how do they work that out for these teams that have at least a semi-level ground to create their rosters. Well, yeah, it's interesting that you asked that question specifically about salary cap because one way in which baseball distinguishes themselves from other sports is that they don't mm. have one. Um, wow. So that perpetuates this even disparity. bigger disparity so between that, the rich teams and the poor the, teams. the missing part of the movie that I was thinking about in like you know contrast with the NBA. I was like, how does this work that one team could have so much more money? Yeah, it's wild. Um, and I mean, I'm not a baseball historian by any means, but my brief understanding of how this all kind of happened, I think it's like late 80s, early 90s, baseball in particular has this big surge in in just overall revenue. Um, like I think, man, what was it in the nineties? Oh, well, I mean, having a surge of, you could argue it was the steroid era. People steroids. were hitting more, <laughs> air, um, more home runs and people like home runs. And so more people start coming out to the games that increases demand that allows them to increase ticket prices. More people are buying jerseys and just the whole price of the sport goes up. And so that gives these teams a lot more money to throw around. Um, which is how then, the big market teams got bigger and then the small yeah, market mm-hmm. teams where there's just less interest in baseball yeah, didn't uh, get that growth. And um, I think we're, I don't know, we're, we're still stuck in that a bit to an extent. Um, but I think sabermetrics has even the playing field a bit. Yeah. Uh, but that is still definitely a factor. And I think you, you said it with basketball to at some point, the money doesn't even matter as much as, just the um the what's brand? the word the brand and the allure yeah. of these yeah. historic the franchises and yeah the location yeah. it's like you get to go to new york you get to go to los angeles and yeah. you get to play for this team that has so much rich history behind it that you know the oakland athletics even though they have 
three or four World Series on, under their franchise's belt. Um, yeah. Just don't have. And, you know, yeah. you don't get to play in a nice stadium. It's not a sellout every day, which is so opposite the case for places like Fenway Park or Wrigley Field, where yeah. right. even when... Which we see yeah. in Moneyball. Yes. Fenway Park looks beautiful in this movie. For a stark a contrast while. when oh he goes gosh. back to the A's. Yeah. like. Looking around for you, what he says. I'm curious. Have you guys ever been to the Oakland this place Coliseum? Is a dump, isn't it? So the only time that I've been to the Oakland Coliseum was with Mitchell, and we saw you two there. Not a baseball game. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I'm sure we've I, been to I, Giants games. Well. Yeah. yeah, we've been to Giants Which, games. I feel like I might have gone to an A's game back in the day with a friend, but I can't remember. A real bummer that uh, it's now known as Oracle Park, um, but the, the home of the San Francisco Giants and the home of the A's are, you know right across the bay from each other because yeah. those are mm-hmm. pretty two polar opposite stadiums it's right uh oracle park is known as one of the best stadiums in all of baseball and the coliseum is always near the bottom of those lists yeah i don't know i i've been to the coliseum once or twice and i, I feel like it has some sort of charm to it i like that it's always chilly like how arco arena had charm yes <laughs> in some way i like that it's always like there's a nip in the air that feels like a fun yeah. Oakland brand of baseball. And yeah. it seems like every Oakland team that is successful has this scrappiness to it that fits yeah. their brand. Um, but I don't know that that was a, a tangent that started with your question about salary caps and, and how this all money right. thing works, right. but it is just fascinating. Um, and then when you throw labor, labor unions and labor rights into it as well, it all gets very complicated very quickly and, you know, billionaires are fighting with millionaires and and all this jazz. But yeah, the best, the best, most interesting space. stories. Yeah, <laughs> zillionaires throwing money at each other. Although succession, I you know, <laughs> Ooh, it can't is, wait. So. <laughs> with the so we can maybe move to this like sports movie conversation. It's it's not a genre that I feel like I have a, a deep connection with, but when it works. And I watch a good sports movie; it like really works. And I kind of, I'm like, I kind of get annoyed at how it's well it works. It's transcendent. It's transcendent. Oh when, when they get the twentieth consecutive win, you're like you're like, man, maybe life will work out after all. <laughs> I and it's like I know it's gonna happen. I know. I, know. I thought they were gonna lose the first time I saw it. Oh, no, that I, that you know. Because that feels true in real life is like just not getting there. Right. Which, I mean, the season ended that but, way. Uh, but you got to think a good amount of people that are coming into this movie know that, at least baseball fans, they know they're, they're going to get that 20-game streak and that they're going to lose the season, right? The, and those are like two big spoilers. Uh, and that's how they play out in the movie. But there is still like high highs of joy of watching them get that 20th game. And that disappointing sadness uh, of losing. Um, oh, and no, I, the last line of the movie, Billy Bean is still looking for that last win. I'm like, no. <laughs> and then his daughter starts singing that he's such a loser. I know. <laughs> I know. But I, And I even love the way Sorkin structures that <clears throat> in his screenplay of there's a couple of interesting choices. Uh, obviously, you make the streak the big kind of joyous celebratory climax of the movie and then they 
he does not prolong the loss. It's basically cut to the last out of of whatever game they were playing against the Twins, right? And when they lose, you get the voiceover, and they lost. They, they they lost. They lose the game, whatever. And so that's not like this. Pro, he's not trying to get drama or suspense out of their loss. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the like last twenty minutes of the movie is just kind of like sitting in that right at that as a choice not the last 20 minutes could have been you know the series against the twins and them losing yeah totally but, but, but he just says no we're gonna get there and when i want to end the, the the epilogue or the denouement of the movie is the disappointment of sports and even in that you get that other perfect transcendent stupid sports movie scene that like has me grinning and smiling and celebrating it's the footage of the triple a team uh-huh. and the guy that trips and he doesn't know he doesn't realize that he's hit a home run and i'm like what what it's this a metaphor is so Billy. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i know yeah yeah that's what i was gonna say was like i think we don't spend a ton of time on that loss because as the movie then tells us the loss was a victory you know, even if it was, even if you didn't win the World Series, the loss in itself was a victory. You changed the game, yeah. and Billy doesn't want to admit that, but he did, yeah. as Future would then reveal yeah. him to be. You know, yeah. Uh, so yeah, I like, yeah, I like the choice to not sit in it and not create drama out of that, and then have all this other information, which actually turns out to be quite important, mm-hmm. uh, somehow be packed into some humongous postscript which the movie already has. <laughs> so I don't know how you would jam that all in there. But it's incredible the way it's like, okay, we're going to go. Billy Bean's going to go to Boston. He's being courted by the Red Sox. And and like obviously that was true. But the weight of that in that single line of postscript, you know, that, that title card at the end of the Red Sox won the World Series for the first time since 1918, and they did this. And Billy Bean doesn't get to be a part of it, <laughs> but I don't know. It, it, it it's this it's perfect movie, confluence of real life events fitting so poetically into the end of this movie. I mean, I mean, it's it's real life. It's great. I was just gonna say I'm realizing why it also like the other reason why it reminded me of There Will Be Blood in a lot of ways, which is from the get from the jump of the movie. You're you're in on the feeling of a new discovery, of a new discovery that changes everything, you know, and how exciting it is to be like hanging out with the people who did it again. You know? And it's like that social network right there. The social network. Yeah, exa- yeah, exactly, exactly. Like, oh man, you know, to be on that college dorm room where it all happened in the Amazon yeah. garage, that would be a boring movie, but. <laughs> But <laughs> Jeff Bezos knowing, surrounded by stacks of books. <laughs> yeah, no, knowing the the changing of the landscape that is to come makes it that much more like oh, I'm with them right now, right. in the making of this. Yeah, yeah. that's very cool. Well, and I was gonna say it's funny that you say it's real life, Matthew, because in looking when we were watching this last night, the and then I was also like looking into yeah. um, Bennett Miller, the director, mm-hmm. who more than some comes from a documentary background yeah and like this movie looks very Ugh. much like a documentary and yeah. you know I'd love to talk more about that but it feels like one too because it's based on true events but the the style in which it's shot uh does not feel overly stylized it and there's so much archival in this movie that 
you know, I think this movie's relationship to reality comes in a very interesting way because it's made to look like a documentary in so many ways. And that also, I thought, plays into, you know, uh, the look of it was not particularly pretty, um, you know, in anticipation for it. I know you guys always do your favorite shots in the movie and it's like you can't there there wasn't like a ton of shots that you could pause yes. and frame on a wall yeah. you know and so um i just thought that was all quite fascinating uh in the way that it was like directed and shot was made to look like a documentary oh and it fits in the brand of oakland's you know whole look Grimey. and feel oh, like yeah you don't want to make the coliseum look particularly pretty and i think no. it works because <clears throat> it's not and that plays into the world we're in we're in a low budget market and yeah. this is not yankee stadium that's their whole point so it all works perfectly and there's yeah. so much to unpack you know i was just gonna say that great scene between david justice and hatterberg in like the kitchenette and like chris pratt is making a like a top ramen yes and david justice is like eating fruit loops and it's all just like it's like oh that furniture has been in that room since 1985 yes. like it's perfect. Just a killer production design in, in terms of just getting you to really feel the the, the minimal uh, uh, value um, of of this place and this team and the way the players are going to feel about themselves and that environment that they're in. And I love. I was just going to say talking about the using archival footage and then there's two things: using archival footage and then having Billy Bean watch a lot of the games on TV. And then put put Philip Seymour Hoffman in the dugout, mm-hmm. but you're watching it through this kind of, you know, 2002 old TV. So it looks that looks like archival footage, and the prevalence to me that I love of the uh, sports talk radio callers, yes, giving this kind of constant commentary. I, honestly, if if they if you said if if you said Bennett Miller went and just like went to whatever the A's sports radio is and like found all this archive stuff and that's what they played for the movie, I would totally believe it. It it feels like the kind of sports talk radio that we grew up listening to in Sacramento. Like if you don't like that, you don't like Sacramento basketball. <laughs> or NBA basketball. And I think it's NBA basketball, but he was canceled, so Oh, <laughs> well, he said Sacramento basketball sometimes. Oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, he was canceled, so we won't bring him up. Who was that? <laughs> yes, I think the all the callers into the talk radio absolutely believable um and on top of that another reflection of the time from when this was made where today we don't have sports talk radio in the same way that you know existed uh at the turn of the century where because it's so much about podcasting right today it would be a podcast or yeah i don't even know what else it would be mlb network you know um it would just come in a, a different medium. So uh, it's just another great way of dropping you into that world in that time period. That kind of immediate access to fans, being able to voice their opinions and have that conversation is so different than what at least the, the mainstream thing is today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, totally. We can do a quick uh, question for you. It's going to feel like a segment. I don't know. Before we move on to segments, Brendan, What's what is like? What's another baseball movie that we got to check out that is just so good? Yeah, um, I so I've been thinking about this with like my my origin story with Moneyball too. Was I yeah. remember um, I was really young when I first saw it, and I was like in middle school, so I didn't quite understand the movie 
to the fullest extent. Uh, yeah. But over the years, my my parents and I, whenever baseball season would roll around, we would always mm-hmm. like start putting on the baseball movies and get in the mood. It's like so, Christmas. It's like Christmas, yes. <laughs> um, and so this movie was definitely in that rotation. Um, Bull Durham was another one, okay. which Bull Durham is probably just the most like quoted baseball movie. And sure. that one, to some extent, is like a vibe <laughs> more than like a movie. It's got a good story yeah. behind it. Um, but like really the best parts of those are these like select scenes, which, which are just like golden. Um, uh, we had talked about rookie of the year earlier, uh, which has a special yeah. place in my heart too, because I, I would watch it as a kid and it's about this kid who yeah. went to Wrigley field and was a Cubs fan and then has this freak magical arm like injury and, and plays for the Cubs at 11 years old or whatever. Um, so that's <laughs> definitely, that's definitely up there as well. I would say those are probably my top three baseball movies, um, but those are three wildly different uh, movies, which is just funny. Um, I would put money Angels in the Outfield. Angels in the Outfield is good. I didn't. I didn't have the same relationship to it. <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely put Moneyball at the top, probably. Yeah. Because um, it feels like just the best overall movie that is yeah. saying something, has a great story, has comedy to it, has a lot of drama um, and still has that magical baseball feel to it. But I think Bull Durham's a great uh, romp of a movie, if you will. Um, And is a great look into minor league life. uh, Okay, cool. Just totally different side of, you know, what major leagues is like. Yeah. And I don't know, rookie of the year is just, it's a fun time. Um, You know, I think it's got a similar vibe to like Space Jam and like Mike, like you said. So yeah. Original Space Jam. Yes, the original. <laughs> Sandlot. Sandlot. Oh, Sandlot. Boy, so many Sandlot. Do you remember? Do you remember the Dennis Quaid it feels, movie? It feels cliche to say Sand. Oh, I remember the Dennis Quaid movie. The rookie. It was just the rookie. Yeah. The no, that was good. And the rookie. Sandlot is like Goonies, Forrest Gump, and A Christmas Story <laughs> in one movie. Boy, I hate two of those movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Right. I know that was. We got the baseball. That was not yeah. one movie. To recommend no, listeners go, go check out, but go, go a league of their own. People go watch a baseball uh, movie. A league of their own. Yeah, Tom Hanks. People love him. Yeah. That episode of Seinfeld where the improv plays the theater people with Bette Midler. <laughs> <laughs> That's my Just context for an episode of content. Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> all right, should we hit the segments? Yeah, let's move on to segments. Yes. What are we all sipping on? I gotta know. I got a nice homemade iced latte here because I've turned on the AC <sighs> and it's gonna get. Warm in my closet, I'm sure, pretty soon. So, <laughs> in, in the podcast closet, I'm good. Very nice. <clears throat> Got it all. Mitchell, what are you drinking? An iced americano from nice. my local coffee shop. Oh, how nice! I made a, I made a uh, half a pot of coffee right before we started. This is, excuse me, a damn fine couple of segments. Uh, so segments. Segments. We got favorite shot, and I know. I'm, I think you've done your homework, so yes, kick us off. Yes, Brennan. I was ready for this one. Um, yeah, when I said it earlier, like when looking for a favorite shot of this movie, it is a different task than some other films you guys have talked about on the show. In that, this movie is not shot to be pretty, um, and so I think one particular shot that exemplifies everything I think this movie is about is during that like climactic sequence when they do break the record for the winning streak and it's this specific match cut 
uh, there's like three or four of them in this sequence, but the first one is when it's all tumbling down and one of the Kansas City Royals hits like a ball down the line. I think it was to tie the game and David Justice is approaching kind of the the wall and then he like trips and falls right into it while he's trying to recover the ball. And it goes from us being like uh, us being on field with and trailing behind him and then it, it match cuts to archival footage of the actual game. And it was really, it was a great, I mean, it was a great match cut, very believable. But it also was um, paired with this great sound design um, where, you know, there was all this cacophony of sound. The stadium was getting restless and the music was getting stressful because, it again, it is all failing and it's crashing right before billy's eyes and then all the sound cuts out right as they make that match cut so it really punctuated that moment and because it's billy in the gym watching on the tv this was this was when billy came and watched the game oh yeah yeah, yeah. well he he leaves because they start they score like two runs and he leaves because they start making right um but then that specific moment i think to again shows this movie's relationship to reality and like to the documentary style that they committed to in that um yes totally it really played on that very well and so i thought that specific one introduced that technique for the rest of the sequence which then they you see it again and again when hatterberg is circling the bases when he hits the home run but um yeah i thought i thought that would be a good candidate for best or favorite shot from this because you don't have that one that you can really stick up on a wall, in my opinion. Yeah. But I'm, I'm curious to hear both of your favorite shots. Mitchell? Um, I mean, I love any uh, stylized shot where it's like slow-mo of the pitcher batter from the A's, and specifically the colors of their jersey are like like squashed, so the green almost looks black. Um, I love any of that coloring going on and kind of just like surrealist and, and stuff like they're doing. super like really bringing in the bright spotlight but it's yeah it's it, almost it, dreamlike it, it, yeah it's dreamlike it gives you the feeling of stadium lights but it's clearly not yeah um i, it's, I a, it's not my favorite shot i just wanted to point it out yeah um but my favorite shot is probably at the beginning when uh billy's on the stands listening to them lose yeah and it's that kind of wide shot of him like sprawled out across and then i'm gonna sandwich that with then it cuts from that to his face and his face is so heavy with uh like like as it, well first time i watched it, i didn't you know know the full story but i guess there was an intimacy there and a heaviness that i wasn't used to from sports movies at least this early on like that's the first kind of kicker of the movie and so it kind of had that majesty of an empty stadium but sandwiched with some like despair yeah you know right yeah, like this totally. man is about to like you know rip his heart out trying yeah. to solve this problem and, and the i love the way it just places you in that distance where it, he's because i think there's like footage of that game or something and then yeah it's it like like doing the, that back and forth you're hearing audio you're seeing credits and then it like the janitor's watching it and yeah then it cuts to billy listening the to empty it coliseum turning, turn the yeah. radio on and off which is uh, also a nice touch too like yeah suspense for you you're like all right i don't get to hear quite what's going on um i'm gonna go favorite shot i'm gonna go with the last shot of the movie it's You'd billy love to do that. uh driving in his truck and um 
I, that single tier. I, I think, like, at this point, do you know that he has turned the Red Sox down, no. right? You no. don't know. Presumably he's going to take the job because his daughter's left him a tape for him yeah. to listen to when he's in Boston. And she, like, yeah, acts like he's, he's going to die. It looks like, <laughs> she's like, it looks like he's dad. feeling nostalgic for Oakland. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Shot. And, and you get the just the incredible pitch perfect Brad Pitt reacting emotional like like restrained emotional response to his daughter singing and that this adorable song and then it's and then it cut you know it focuses the focus shifts from Brad to the port of Oakland and this just like gross stacks and stacks and stacks of these big storage containers and the big cranes and it's ugly but it's like oh this is it's home it's everything it's everything to billy Mm. and 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 it's it's like more personally meaningful for me because i i know that drive and i know like i yeah whenever i drive by drive through or drive by oakland and the bay like it feels you know i've been in northern california my whole life it feels like home to a certain degree but there's kind of a grossness to it and um and then and then the focus shifts back on or the shot changes to that close-up of him tears welling up in his eyes it's just really nice and that you don't you know there's there's just this they still shock you with the reveal that he didn't take yeah that's what i was gonna say yeah um the that title card packs this great punch because of that moment um that that final shot of the movie uh sets you up to really oh have a reaction to a title card i hate when movies based on real life uh have like a series of title cards at the end that are like just just information like right like a lot of them do that thing where they show you a number of characters and say like what they went on to do and you're like oh it's yeah. nice but right it doesn't cool. have that same plot impact that these exactly do. i want i want that final t- title card to have a narrative impact and moneyball succeeds in that mm-hmm. incredibly well um all right next next segment this will be a quick one our letterboxed star rating yeah i'm gonna hit it with the old fiver <laughs> five stars yes I would agree. Easy. It was going to be five stars, but like, I mean, it was five stars before viewing it last yeah. night. But fish in a barrel. Yeah. Next segment: unsung heroes. Brendan, do, do you get what this is? Yes. Yes. Okay. Listening to your recent episodes, I got an idea of it for sure. <laughs> I like it. It's a great, great <laughs> little it's... segment and um, thing to look for. So hit us with it. Um, I'm trying to see if. Yeah, any particular notes on here, but my unsung hero for this, and there's plenty of good candidates, but I'll go the serious route here, is the um, the entire sound team behind the movie, I think is a great mm. unsung hero here in that this score is amazing. Um, yes. And adds to the energy, I think, of the movie. But the sound editing and sound mixing as well, really really good stuff um i think moneyball's only oscar winner was for sound mixing but i could totally see why um because you know like we talked earlier there's all these radio callers these radio hosts and talking heads that a lot of times during these montage sequence create this chaotic energy um that add to it and a lot of times it's going those levels are going up as you know 
we're yeah. seeing something happen and then they go down and we hear like young Billy Bean at some workout in front of a scout, you know, and they're all like flowing in and out and it creates this yeah. great energy for all these um, montages. But again, in certain points um, near the climax of the movie, the same thing happens where you have these big, uh, you know, stadium filled sounds yeah. and they all come, uh, yeah. they all stop. Right, and yeah. it really punctuates these emotional moments uh, in a in an awesome way. So, um, yeah, for that reason, I would say, sound team, uh, Boy, unsung the, hero. Love the sound design. Love the just pitch perfect sound effect every time a the bat comes in contact with a ball in this movie. Oh, great stuff. Never so good. Never get tired of that sound. Sweet crack of the bat. Yeah, Mitchell, unsung hero. <laughs> Again, I've already said mine, which is the peanuts and popcorn. <laughs> that allow Brad Pitt to be human to us. Yes. Uh, my unsung hero is hearing aid scout. <laughs> Good yeah. one. Really the whole scouting team, but <laughs> him in particular, those those men make this movie so great. Uh, I, I just love it. And an honorable mention is the assistant coach when they go visit Hatterberg in his house. And he's like, oh yes. I, yes. I, I almost wanted to put him, but like I said, I went the serious route, but he's like, yeah, what first, is it? First it, base is easy. Actually, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. So what about the fans? Yeah, maybe I'll teach one of them. So. <laughs> Hearing aid uh, guys is the swanky of Moneyball. Yes, yes. Uh, to quote Nomadland. You remember swanky from Nomadland? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Steals the uh, show. Good comp. Good comp. <laughs> so. And then last segment is just what else we've been watching lately. Oh, yeah, that's right. That we think might be a wreck. Um, I can kick this one off. I watched, I saw, you know, just following a bunch of movie accounts that randomly say, hey, remember this? And then I say, I don't. So I go watch it. And one of it was, uh, I think it was a Criterion. And they're like, hey, we have a movie called God Told Me To about this series of murders. Like from, and like right before the actual murderers killed themselves, they, like the detective's like, what's going on? He's like, God told me to. And it's like kind of a like 70s b-movie horror movie but uh it was a, it was a fun time god told me to god told me to love it it's on criterion yeah, it. it's on criterion and it, it's actually like a really good looking movie mm, and cool. uh really, really funky shooting style and it, it's just a fun time and there's like an alien jesus it's great love it um i will i got two i'll start with my uh, not 1970s, but 19, late 80s, 1990 exploitation movie, B-movie, King of New York, with Christopher Walken before the Christopher Walken impression. Mm. Um, and uh, Lawrence Fishburne, so young, he's credited as Larry Fishburne in this movie. And he is amazing. He's like one of the you know second lead or whatever, and he is incredible. Christopher Walken plays like this gangster guy, just get out of prison, and he's got this crew of you know drug runners and stuff under him, and they just go on this killing spree. And David, it's like a David Caruso before his TV stuff as a detective. Wesley Snipes is in it, uh, like just this crazy cast, uh, and it is a wild movie. And the last thirty minutes or so, like kick into a gear that I was not expecting and just really floored me. Uh, it's it's a weird it's kind of a tough hang but um, yeah it's 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 a, 
I don't know who this recommendation is for, but if any of that sounded interesting to you, go watch King of New York. And then I showed um, Enoch, my seven-year-old, for the first time. We had a movie night this week. We watched The Iron Giant. Nice. And he loved it. Nice. And I loved it. It is a perfect animated movie. So uh, go watch Iron Giant. You guys have such good recommendations <laughs> this was another one that i was kind of like nervous about because i'm like i'm not watching anything particularly sophisticated right now but i'm excited no. oh god told watched... me to is the least sophisticated <laughs> no yeah could... king of new york there's nothing <laughs> the fact that these are on the criterion channel is is a misnomer because there is nothing highbrow about king of new york <laughs> i promise you that <laughs> like i said alien jesus right right, right. <laughs> <laughs> who knew alien jesus would be uh, so comforting um yeah, uh, we finished uh, the Hulu series Nine Perfect Strangers this week. Oh, um, the Nicole Kidman one. Yes. Um, pretty good. From the same like uh, writer-creator who brought us Big Little Lies, based on oh, a cool. book from the same author who wrote Big Little Lies. So it's got it's living in a similar world, but it is yeah. kind of weirder. Um, so, you know, I would say it's worth checking out. But um, And then we are very much entrenched in reality TV right now. Survivor just kicked yes. off this week. Big Brother's yes. wrapping up. Bachelor in Paradise is wrapping up. Um, so definitely living Br- in that Brennan, world. you're watching Survivor. Yes, I am. Yeah, I mean, during, yeah. during you know, this past year, uh, per Sarah's recommendation, we revisited a number of old seasons of Survivor. Megan and I have been doing that. It's a great, great <laughs> activity. It's awesome yeah, TV to watch. So... Yeah, I was very excited so, to get watch, into Did you watch Heroes vs. Villains? Yep, we watched Heroes vs. Oh, Villains. So good. So um, good. We, All right, guys, back. I'm, I'm hopping off this Zoom call. <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll talk to you guys later. Uh, um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of where we've been. Oh, I love it. I love the TV. We, we Yeah, a lot we, of TV Mitchell and I are so, like, don't watch a lot of TV, so I like the TV rights. I am excited for this upcoming fall in which yeah. a lot of good stuff hitting theaters, so... I'll be getting back into movies soon enough. But cool, love it, Brendan. Thank you so much for being on the pod this week. Uh, how can people find you? And when are you gonna make? When are you gonna make a movie? Let's. That's what we're gonna. Oh my goodness. Well, first and foremost, <laughs> thank you for having me on. This was awesome. I was super excited to revisit this movie and, and discuss it with you guys. So thank you. Um, yeah, I guess if people want to like follow me on Instagram, <laughs> they could find me at. Uh, at B, the letter B, the number two, then the word the, and then R-E-N-D-A-N, B to the Rendon, um, a middle school handle that I've kept. Um, <laughs> Love it. Love it. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, on there, they'll like find my website if they want to check out stuff. Um, cool. And uh, they can also check out Paradiso Podcasts at paradisomedia.io. Come check out our Is content. there a particular podcast? that you would recommend um we don't on the english side you know for all the french speaking listeners uh out there we have a ton of stuff go check out the website i can't <laughs> list it all we have two shows out right now on the english side but we have more coming cool. down the pipe so you know stay tuned um love it for some good stuff that should be coming out soon awesome thanks, thanks brendan again. thanks you guys Hey, thanks again, Brendan, for coming on this week's episode of the podcast. This is Matthew by myself. 
Uh, just doing a quick outro for what has already been a little bit of a longer episode, so we're going to kind of keep things quick. Uh, I know this episode a little delayed. Mitchell and I just busy couple weeks traveling, uh, both a little bit. So here we are, just finished up Moneyball. We're excited about what's coming up next week on the podcast. Really excited about the rest of the month of October in general, but next week in particular, we are watching what uh, sometimes I say is my favorite movie of all time. Uh, it'll be the oldest movie we've covered on the podcast. We are revisiting Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window starring Jimmy Stewart and Grace Kelly. If you've never seen Rear Window, there's never been a better time. Check it out. I think you can rent it on Amazon, uh, Apple uh, TV and all of that. But check out Rear Window. This movie is a masterpiece. Really just an amazing, amazing. But it's also so fun. If you if you think, oh, it's an old movie, whatever. No, this movie is so much fun and entertaining through and through. Check out Rear Window. After that, we're having our Halloween special with Jared Hogan. And we're also going to be doing Dune, The French Dispatch this month. So we've got all kinds of stuff coming up on Movies While They Sleep. Check it out. Um, next week is Rear Window. Excited for that. In the meantime, you can follow us on Instagram at Movies While They Sleep. Check out Favorite Shots for Moneyball. Uh, you can check out, as we said in our Halloween mini episode, you can check out the uh, Jared's Halloween movie challenge and then the 10 kind of movies in particular that Jared's going to be wanting to talk about with us on the podcast. Uh, you can check it out there. And I just encourage you, uh, we, we say every week, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That uh, means a lot to us. But I, I just encourage you to share this with a friend, share the podcast with a friend. Uh, just a great way to get the word out and around. Um, and we will be back next time for Alfred Hitchcock's window uh, Mitchell says something like good night sleepy heads bye as long as it's not going in I miss him <laughs>